We continue now our series in Matthew's Gospel and have come to the 12th chapter, beginning in verse 38. And actually, we're going to take into consideration the entirety of this remaining chapter, 12 of Matthew. Matthew 12, beginning with verse 38. Will you join me in prayer before we read together? O gracious God and Father, as we now come to your word, it is with great joy because you have given to us this inerrant word, and you have given to us on every page the redeeming work of Christ about which to read, and Christ himself through the power of the Holy Spirit with whom we have fellowship. We ask, Father, that if there are those among us who know you not, that today, should it please you in your sovereignty, they may come to know you, believe and repent of sin, and come to know Christ, the Redeemer, who shed his blood for sinners like us. And we ask, Father, that your people will grow in the most holy faith, prosper under your hand as we read and study and follow your word, and that you will work in every heart in those ways in which you know is right and best For you know us exhaustively, and apply your word in those ways, most for your glory and for the good of your church and of all who are here. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning with verse 38. This is the word of God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Our Lord, in his controversy with the Pharisees, points back to Jonah's preaching and how Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah the prophet. He does this in order to announce judgments on them for their sins. The Bible teaches judgment on sin. Our culture doesn't like it. Many in the church do not like it, but there it is. This is what God's Word teaches. God is a holy and a righteous God, 
and he must, in consistency with his nature, punish sin. Jesus also, as he proclaims punishment upon sin, teaches in no uncertain terms that those who do not believe on him will face the ultimate judgment. Those who hear the gospel and reject that gospel will be judged for their unbelief. People who knew far less than did the Pharisees about God's word and about the truth, those Ninevites, repented long, long ago. And so unbelievers who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and will not believe are without excuse on that day of judgment. And so Jesus uses all of this in order to call sinners to faith and to repentance. Now we see several things in this text, and the first thing that I want you to see is that the Pharisees call for a sign. They want a sign. They ask for a sign. A sign is some miracle miracle to confirm who Jesus is, a pointer to who he is. Now he's been performing miracles all along. As we've read through Matthew's gospel, we've seen Jesus performing all sorts of wondrous miracles. The Pharisees have seen these things. They are no strangers to these things, but they want to designate the sign. They want something that they will accept and receive as irrefutable. Convince us, they say, in essence, to Jesus. Show us a sign that will convince us. And Jesus sees their unbelief. They have seen signs. When he cast out a demon, what did they do? When he had cast out a demon, they accused him of being in league with Beelzebub. They accused him of being in league with the devil himself. If he performed a sign, they would manipulate the sign. If he did not perform a sign, they would manipulate that as well. They care nothing for belief in Jesus. They simply want to kill him, Matthew's gospel has already told us, and they want to bring him into disrepute before the people. Oh, the deception of sin. What we see here above all is the truth of what Paul the Apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. Jesus himself stands before them, performs miracles demonstrating the fulfillment of all of the prophecies pointing to what the Messiah would be like and what he would do, and yet they reject him. Only the Holy Spirit can open the heart to convert a sinner from his sin. It requires the new birth from above. Only faith can receive a sign, and a sign cannot produce faith. But signs do, do when they are, when they are shown leave sinners more deeply inexcusable than they were before, and that will be the case with these Pharisees who did not repent. Today, today we have the greatest of signs. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and we have been given a completed canon. We have all of the inerrant word of God, and yet in the church today, these truths are rejected. I mean the professing church, and in our culture, these things today are rejected. A culture rejecting God's clear revelation is without excuse. And so the minister of the gospel is called to preach the word of God to his people, but also to a lost world. And we call sinners to faith and repentance, knowing that apart from the work of the Spirit of God, effectually they cannot do so. Understand this. Every person who has departed from God is responsible to return to the God from whom he has departed, even though incapable And he is fully inexcusable for his own rejection of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees call for a sign. But the second thing we see is the sign that Jesus promises, the sign of Jonah. Read again beginning with verse 39. 
Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus begins rebuking their unbelief by calling them a wicked and adulterous generation. Can you imagine a worse thing to be called by the Son of God than a wicked and adulterous generation? Perhaps thinking back upon Hosea as God had loved his people and they walked away from that overt love of God for them. They have sinned against the light. They are deliberately unfaithful to God. They have his truth and they have not received his truth. They have manipulated his truth into their own barbarous religion. They should believe. They are unfaithful to God's covenant. And Jesus will not give them a sign on demand. He simply will not be manipulated by them. They don't want to believe. They want to disdain him, and they want others to disdain him as well. Do you remember how Jesus addresses this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, when he says that even if someone came back from the grave, they would not believe him? Well, indeed, that's what Jesus did. He came back from the grave, and yet they will not believe him. Jesus will give them a sign. He will give them one sign, and that sign he calls the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and nights, so Messiah would be in the grave. Just as Jonah was delivered up onto the shore, out from the belly of the great fish, so Messiah will be raised from the dead and delivered from the grave. So Jonah was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sign that he promises is the sign of resurrection from the dead. Don't you find it ironic? that the Pharisees who wish to discredit him, Jesus will be raised from the dead. The very sign that he gives them would arise out of their own murder of him. God and his sovereignty, ruling and overruling, determining all. The sign of resurrection arising from their very murder of the Son of the living God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, then, among other things, is a sign. How is the resurrection a sign? The resurrection, of course, is a sign of many truths. It points to many realities. It is a sign of the authenticity of the ministry of Jesus. Destroy this temple, and after three days, I will raise it again. It is a sign declaring his divine sonship. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is a sign of the justification of sinners. It shows that the debt has been completely paid and that now he may justify sinners freely by his grace. For Paul tells us he was raised for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus is a sign of the resurrection on the last day. O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? And it is a sign, according to the word of God, of the judgment that is to come. So that the Apostle Paul, preaching at Athens, says he commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a confirmation of God's promise that he will bring judgment on the world of sinners. 
And so firmly established is Jesus' resurrection from the dead that Paul can proclaim the judgment to come on its foundation. And so we do today. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And among other things, it points to the promise and reality of a future judgment to come. But we see a third thing. We see Jesus preaching the certainty of judgment in light of the sign of Jonah. Jesus preaches the certainty of judgment in verses 41 and 42. Look again. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jonah, of course, you will remember, was that Old Testament prophet who prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, around 785 B.C. to 745 B.C. God commanded him to go to Nineveh. Jonah fled. He was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. The fish threw him up on the shore after he declared salvation is of the Lord. And there he preached, and Nineveh repented. This is the story. You know it well. This is what happened. And here is Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, stands before you, and you do not believe. The people of Nineveh will stand up at the day of judgment, and they will condemn you. What is Jesus' point? The point is this. The Ninevites had far less revelation than you have, and yet they believed, and you sin against greater light. And so on that day, these Ninevites will stand on the great day of judgment, and they will say, we believed and we repented at the revelation that was given to us. The very Son of God stood before you. The very Son of God proclaimed to you grace and mercy and judgment, and you did not believe, and you did not repent. And the same is true of the Queen of Sheba. She came to challenge Solomon's wisdom and left a believer in Solomon's greatness. We have, we have a greater than Jonah. Something greater than Jonah. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is happening here. Someone greater than Solomon is here. And yet, you have not believed. Again, we have. Our culture has preached in it the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have a complete Bible inerrant in the whole and in the part. Greater light could not be given. And yet our culture refuses to believe. And we have a culture of moralists. The Pharisees are moralists. They want a Messiah who also is a moralist who will give them a view of salvation that conforms to their own view of how God might accept them. And that leads us to the fourth thing that we see in this magnificent text. Self-reformation deepens unbelief in a generation and will deepen that generation's judgment. Self-reformation deepens unbelief. Now Jesus tells a parable. Essentially the parable is this. An unclean spirit, that is a demon, leaves his host, the man in whom he had indwelt. He walks into a, a place of desolation, and finding no resting place, he returns to the man that he had previously 
and dwelt. When he arrives, he finds that the house has been swept clean, that is to say, the body's cleaned up. The man has made some sort of moral reformation of himself. And then seven spirits, in addition to this demon, come to indwell him. The word katoikeo means to live in, to dwell in, not simply to pass through or stay for a while. They now come to be there permanently. They find now their permanent abode in the cleaned up house of this man who swept himself clean after the demon had left. So that the last state of the man is worse than before. What is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? He's saying to them, you attempt to clean yourself up. You attempt through your works to make yourselves acceptable to God. You attempt through your religious exercises to be accepted by God. You are like that man that the demons, the demon left, and when he returned, finding that, they, that the man had cleaned out his house, swept it clean, now he comes in with seven other demons, and the man is worse than before. The gospel is not, be moral and all will be well. The gospel is not, do religious exercises and you will be saved. The gospel is not, find ways in which you can make yourself acceptable in the presence of a holy and living God. The gospel says you are unclean and only Christ who died and rose again can cleanse you from your sin. A new possession is needed, not the demons who once indwelt, but a new possession is needed, the clean Holy Spirit of God. And so listen and listen well. If you were among those who try to clean yourselves up, who through your own morality want to make yourself acceptable to God, unless you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you will simply in the end be worse than before. You know, we're going to be coming next time to the parables. And in the parables, we will read, especially in the parable of the sower, how certain soils receive the word of God. And how many times have we seen those who seem with joy to receive and accept the word of God only to return to greater sin than they left when they professed faith in Christ because they were not truly saved from their sins. Repentance is not penance. Repentance is not self-reformation. Now, you'll find no greater explanation of what repentance is all about, true repentance, than by turning to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're new to Presbyterianism, this is a summary of what the Bible teaching to which our officers subscribe. Let me read a little of it to you about repentance. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. You see what that means? Repentance is not something you work up. It's something that God gives. It's a grace. An evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof, is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. By repentance, a sinner, out of the sight and sense not only of the danger but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins, as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him 
in all the ways of his commandments. And so the repentant man or woman or child is that person who sees, I'm a sinner in the sight of God, I hate my sin. I would come to Jesus even if there were no hell, though there is. I would come to Jesus if there were no punishment for sin, even though there is, because I see my sin to be so ugly and I see it to be so heinous, and I see the mercy of God in Christ, and now I turn from all my sin and I put my trust in Him and repent and walk in a new direction. Although repentance be not rested in, you don't rely on your repentance You rely on Christ and what he did on the cross. Although repentance be not rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet is it of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. The man who truly believes truly repents. Repentance is the obverse side of faith. When a person truly believes, he truly repents who truly repents, truly believes. And then, there is this summary of what the Bible teaches in this paragraph. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. Every sin, even the smallest, deserves God's infinite displeasure. Listen to this. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. No matter how great your sin has been, if you come in faith to Jesus Christ turning from your sins, you will not be damned, but will be received of the Lord through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so hear it well. Self-reformation deepens unbelief. Self-reformation deepens judgment. Repentance is not self-reformation. It is a grace that is given to us from on high. What then is necessary? This is our fifth point in the text. What is necessary is a relationship with Jesus. Where do we see this? Well, we come to the very end of the passage. And while he was still speaking to the people, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Now, Jesus is not being rude concerning his family. He's trying to make a very important point. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Self-effort, self-righteousness cannot regenerate the soul. Jesus' family comes. Who is my family? The true family of God are those who trust in Jesus and who follow his word. Jesus will build a true seed of Israel, those who trust in him. Have you, do you trust in him? Have you entrusted your soul to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? And so that's the text. Nothing esoteric. Very simple, very clear, very profound. I want to bring four concluding applications. The first is this. Judgment will be according to light. Now we have people who ask the question, what about people who have never heard the gospel? Will they be judged? Of course. We're all sinners fallen in Adam deserving of God's infinite displeasure. 
But here's the point of the text. Those who have heard the gospel will be without excuse on the day of judgment, and their judgment will be deeper. This theme is no child's play. Jesus is utterly serious here. We must be utterly serious here. An unbeliever who has more exposure to the truth will receive heavier judgment. And on that day, there will be those who will say, Oh, now I stand before the judge of the living and the dead, dressed not in his righteousness but in my own filth. And I heard the gospel and I rejected it. I heard the word of God faithfully proclaimed and I did not receive it. My mother and my father taught me the gospel in my home. They had me in church every Sunday. The minister faithfully proclaimed salvation through Christ and I cared nothing for it. Oh, my judgment is doubly just. And I want no one under my charge. Do you know that one of my consistent regular ongoing prayers is that no one under my charge would be lost, but everyone saved. Everyone truly trusting in Christ alone for redemption, for salvation from sin. Trust him, trust him alone. That's the first thing, the first final application. Judgment will be according to light. Second thing, I want you to think of Jonah as a type. The Lord Jesus is teaching us to think of this historical experience of Jonah as a type so that we look to the resurrection of Jonah, his, his being coughed up as if he were coming from Sheol itself, his resurrection as a type of the resurrection of Jesus. But you see, his being cast into the sea was a type as well. Jonah was a type of atonement as well as resurrection. He was substituted, you will recall, for the mariners so that they may live. And Jesus comes into this world and he says, in essence, I am cast into the sea of wrath that sinners might live. Down, down, down into the billows of the wrath of God I will go so that my people will not go there. Down, down into the wrath of God so that my people will be delivered from the wrath that is surely coming. Look to this sign of Jonah. Look to Christ who died for sinners and who rose from the dead. Put your trust in him. Third application. I want a sign. Prove it to me. Show it to me. You know, I still come across people like that. Maybe someone sitting here. Prove to me that God exists. Every atom of the universe screams that God is. Prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead. Nothing more clear. Nothing more clear than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I want a sign. Well, there is a sign. Jesus said, one is given. Jesus himself, raised from the dead, is the sign. Hugh Martin, in his great book on Jonah, classic, says, if you want higher proof than he himself constitutes, must you not be blind? It is not evidence you need, but vision Not a sign to prove the light, but eyes to see the light. That's the issue. You see, it's the the radio signal that goes out. The radio signal is clear, 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 clear. The problem is the receiver is dead. Bring the receiver to light, 
to life that it may receive the signal. That's where we are. We don't lack any proof that Jesus rose from the dead. There's nothing more clear. We don't lack proof that the Bible is God's word. There is nothing more clear. What those who do not receive it, believe it, and act upon it lack is life to receive it. You're dead in your trespasses and sins apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. D.A. Carson says, for his own followers, his authority will be grounded in his death and resurrection. And as for those who do not believe, they will only prove themselves more wicked than the Ninevites. Oh, what a statement. What a, what a reality. But that brings me to a fourth and final application of this text. A greater than Jonah has come. A greater than Jonah has come, people of God. Now again, I'm reflecting Martin's great work to a certain degree here, but a greater than Jonah has come. Has he not a greater person than Jonah? Who was Jonah? He was a man like the rest of us, a reluctant prophet who went the other way. He didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. Who is Jesus, one who who is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who came into this world willingly that he might give himself for our sins and proclaim to us the truth and save us by his atonement on the cross? Yes, indeed, a greater person than Jonah has come. He holds a greater office than did Jonah, for Jonah was a prophet, but Jesus is the prophet, and he is the king, and he is the priest of his people. He holds a greater office than did Jonah. He has a greater right to call sinners to repentance than did Jonah even, because he bore the wrath of God and he rose from the dead. Greater judgment comes when he is not believed upon than the judgment that came upon the Ninevites when they did not believe God's word proclaimed by Jonah, the prophet. But there's something else. And this brings not only the theme of judgment, but the theme of hope. Because the one who has come, the Lord Jesus, is greater than Jonah because he also has greater power than Jonah. Jonah could call to repentance. Jesus can give repentance. Jonah could preach repentance, but he could not grant it. Jesus can give repentance and life to the dead. Because repentance unto life is a consequence of life in the soul. Am I born again, you ask? Do I have new life in my soul? Well, do you repent? Is there a hatred of sin that nailed the Savior to the cross and a turning from it? This comes only from the new birth. This is of absolute and vital importance. What a picture of spiritual death is here in this chapter as we view these Pharisees. How privileged they were, yet how lost they were. What light shone and how darkened they remained. A divine interposition is needed if any sinner is to come to life. A new nature, a new heart, a radical change. Except a man be born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The problem with the Pharisees is that they did not see themselves as lost sinners in need of a Savior. I was reading the other day of a man who heard George Whitfield preach. And as he was under deep conviction of sin, he was sitting with the Countess of Huntington. You ladies remember in the wick when I spoke to you about Lady Selina, the Countess of Huntington? 
And he said, I'm a lost man. I'm a lost man. He was weeping. I'm a lost man. And she said, I'm so glad to hear it. And he said, what? I'm a lost man. How can you be so cruel? She said, I say it still. I am so glad to hear it. What do you mean? Well, Jesus said, the Son of Man is coming to the world to seek and save that which is lost. And he said, that is a text for my soul. And he believed on Christ. And he walked out, grew sick, and fell down dead. A saved man. Because he believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw himself lost. Do I have a lost man here today? Do I have a lost woman here today? Do I have a lost child here today? Oh yes, all of us by nature lost, but I mean, do you see yourself because the Spirit of God is working within your heart? I see myself as lost and undone. I cannot save myself. I can't clean myself up. I can't sweep out the house. I need a Savior. I need a Redeemer. Let me tell you, a greater than Jonah has come, who not only can proclaim repentance, but who can give repentance. Who not only can call to faith, but who can give faith. Who not only only can speak a word, but can make that word to be life-giving down deep in the soul. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Ask around you, and you will find people all around you. He will tell you, he has done so for me. He has done so for me. There's that line at the end of Jonah. Who can tell? Maybe they will repent. Who can tell what the Lord may do today through the preaching of his word? May the Lord bless the proclamation of his gospel. Amen.